values, and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Appreciate you spending some time with us. They are updating right now. The Pentagon is updating um, about the China balloon situation. We're going to bring you some of that here coming up in a few minutes um, in the next segment of the show. But we had an interesting interview this morning. I've talked with leadership at the Arizona Senate. Uh, we had the Senate president in, and they have an Inflation Reduction Act going in the in the Arizona State Legislature. In as much as the Arizona Legislature believes they can affect affect inflation, that it is a national problem. And one of the ideas that they have at the state level is to outlaw cities and towns levying taxes on food from the grocery store and uh, rent. So if you pay, if you have a mortgage. Which usually, if you think about it, it's not always the case. But people consider this, and I think it's probably true, that it is people that the people that are renting are the ones that are not able to afford buying. So they are people that I'm not saying they're lower income, but they're the people that you know you're trying to help. So they want to stop these cities and towns. They want to make it outlawed in Arizona against the law in Arizona to levy a tax on grocery store food and taxes on rent. And the uh, the League of Arizona Cities and Towns, Tom Belshi joined me. He's their executive director, um, talked about a little bit of what this means. He used the town of Taylor, Arizona, which is up in the White Mountains, by the way, um, I love the White Mountains. I love that entire area from, you know, Heber and Overgard. I love Taylor. Uh, I love Snowflake and Sholo. Uh, I, I just love it up there. Um, Springerville is such a beautiful area. It's just, it, it, it's heaven up there. And so he used the town of Taylor as an example. A little town like Taylor, Arizona, up in the White Mountains. Food, uh, to the tax on, on food for home consumption or, you know, groceries is 35% of their general fund. Now, Taylor, Arizona doesn't have the diversified economy, say, of a, of a Phoenix or, you know, a Tucson or Mesa. And so for them, that food tax is an important way for them to provide the services that, that they do. That's public safety, water and sewer, roads, parks and recreation. But he goes on to talk about Taylor and gives out a pretty big number of how much of this money uh, it would affect Taylor. What they will be forced to do is raise taxes somewhere else. They don't have a property tax. And so they would be forced to raise the sales tax rate on the other items that are in the sales tax base. We believe that when you when you reduce the number of items that you can tax in your tax base, everybody pays a higher rate for everything else. Now, what Mr. Belshi did say was he threw out the number of 35 percent, that 35 percent of Taylor's budget comes from the food tax. Now, that seems like a big number to me. I don't know how many dollars that is compared to the town's budget. I don't I don't know. But if 35 percent of the city's budget or the town's budget is fed through a food tax. Now, I wonder what that food tax is. If I were on the other side of this, if I were the Senate president or anybody else in leadership that's promoting ending this tax, I would use that as an example as well and say 35% of your town's budget is being funded by taxing the food you eat from the grocery store. Now, again, I'm not a proponent of any of this. I am talking about these things. Um, I'm talking just about both sides of them right now. But 
the people that are proponents of this ending these taxes are saying you should not be taxed for food and shelter. That principle sounds pretty solid to me. And I think that that would be a bipartisan issue as well, meaning that there's a lot of, you know, the Democrats are saying this is about working families and families on a tight budget. They shouldn't be paying extra. Well, you've got to find other areas to make that revenue up. And, and Mr. Belshi acknowledges that they would have to find other ways to find that revenue. Is that the best way to go? Um, the other part of it, and I didn't get to this with Mr. Belshi, is about um, should the state be telling cities and towns, how to govern what works best for their cities and towns. I believe in small government at the local level. And to me, when I think about this and the state doing this, that's the one thing that come, that sticks in my mind and says maybe this isn't such a good idea. Because in its at its principle, taxing people for the necessities doesn't sound like the right thing. Um, I like to see low taxes like everyone else. I want to see the government run as lean as it possibly can. But this is about where they get those dollars, not what dollars they get. And if 35% of the town's budget is coming in, that's what he said. And that's the way I heard it and everybody else around here heard it, thinking it was a large number. And what I did with Mr. Belshi, and I do this with all of my guests, is I have an opportunity like I have now to comment on what I heard. But I wanted you to be able to hear the other side and hear completely what they had to say. Um, he talks about Gilbert. He talks the idea. talks about the idea of a retail tax. We passed a law uh, several years ago based on the, the Wayfair case that was passed in the courts that said that online retailers have to remit tax based on where uh, they sell something. So, you know, uh, I live out in Gilbert, and so if uh, something is sent to my house from one of those online retailers, then I have to pay the tax, um, and that tax goes to the, to the town of Gilbert. Yeah, and here's the here's the thing about that. For years, this has been going on similarly, I believe. Uh, as a contractor, when I was in the contracting business as a subcontractor, and many of you out there that are doing just that, even if you're owning the company or you're running around right now in a work truck going to people's homes and businesses to add things or repair things, you're a, you're a service technician. You could be an AC service technician, a plumber, an electrician, but you're in the service industry. Um the owners of the companies that do that construction have to pay what's called a privilege tax, and you have to buy a privilege tax license. And each town, <clears throat> each town has a different tax in this industry. So it doesn't matter if I work in your town once a year or I work in your town once a week. I have to file a report every month to your town council or city council, a report that says, here's the amount of work I did in your city. This is what the tax I collected is. Here's a check for the taxes I owe you. And if I haven't worked in your city, I still have to remit the report that's zeroed out and says, I haven't worked in your city this month. And they keep track that you do this. So it adds to the red tape. But what it is is it's forcing me, even though my business is is um, based in, or was, it isn't anymore, was based in Phoenix. I don't have the business anymore. When I'm doing work in Gilbert, I'm paying taxes in Gilbert, and that customer is being taxed in Gilbert, and I'm sending the check to Gilbert. But it's also Chandler and Mesa and Phoenix and go west, go north, and, and that's the way it works. So this isn't necessarily a new thing in that regard. And so how do we how do we fund or how do we make sure that towns and cities are able to fund themselves, but 
is it a principle that most people in Arizona would believe to be true? And that principle is people should not be taxed because it's not every city that does this. It's a small amount of cities that do this. You should not be taxed for food and shelter, food being grocery store food, not restaurants, not fast food. But the food at the grocery store, it's a, it's a great question that we'll continue to ask. Coming up in a moment, we are going to update you. How concerned should we be about the Chinese balloon in U.S. airspace? We'll address it next. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, all eyes have been to the skies over the northern U.S. as a Chinese balloon had entered U.S. airspace. We've been talking about this story since yesterday. Brigadier General Pat Ryder from the Pentagon uh, talking about what we know about this balloon. So I'm not going to go into uh, any specific intelligence that we, we may have. Again, uh, we, we know this is a Chinese balloon. Um, and that it has the ability to maneuver, but I'll just leave it at that. So that's as much as they're going to reveal right now. So he was asked about shooting it down, and would you have shot it down if it was over a body of water? Uh, again, right now we're monitoring the situation closely, uh, reviewing options, but beyond that I'm not going to have any additional information. All right, so so far this is an update that wasn't much of an update other than an acknowledgement that this is an issue. So now he was asked directly, is this balloon a threat? Right now, we assess that there is no threat, a physical threat or military threat to people on the ground. So we're continuing to monitor, um, you know, and we'll just leave it at that. A um, lot of questions from the American people. Um, and, and I would say this, you know, and there are a lot of people that understand it's the it is a cat and mouse game. I know that you know that I know that you know that I know what you're up to. That's the game. Um, and so is this. Are they just testing our defense systems? Are they testing how we do things? Is this a way for them to say, all right, let's do this. It's pretty innocent. Let's see what they do. If they shoot it down, they're not going to get anything. What are they going to do if this happens? How do they respond? Is that part of this? Is that why our government is playing close to the vest? How does NORAD, you know, how do the people in North America, how do they respond to this? And if they shoot it down, they're not going to get anything from us. We're going to tell them it's a mistake. It looks like a mistake. But we're going to get a lot of intelligence on how they do business in a, in a tense situation. Now, on the other hand, what if they have – what if the Americans – what if we have a way to get up there, hook onto it, and take it down with us and see what's inside? Uh, is that what this is all about? And, and you know, there's so – or could it be – could it be an innocent mistake? Could this be something that has military capabilities but is 100 percent civilian and it just got off of its course and in the end it's going to be nothing? And the answer to all of that from what we just heard from the brigadier general, they might know, but we don't. And so that, that the one question now that comes to my mind is you had a presser and there's, it's still ongoing, by the way, but you had a press conference where you talked about this event. You talked about what was happening here, but you didn't tell us anything. So you felt like it was important enough to get out in front of it and speak to the American people, but you didn't say anything. Now, are you saying – you're not saying anything because you don't know, 
or are you saying things because you can't say right now? That's what concerns me more than anything else. When you see them being very cagey and careful about how they say what they say, then that's when I think, man, there may be, there's just a lot more than this than they want to talk about, but they know they have to get out in front of it. That is my, my initial, my initial inclination in this is that that's what they are up to. Um, so, you know, what this ends up being, I don't know. I guess we'll find out in the coming days. This is one of those events, it seems like, every once in a while. There may be, um, if you talk to someone that's in the intelligence gathering world or someone that, people in the FBI, um, and I have friends that are retired with the FBI, but I also have talked to people that are in the FBI, and they've been charged since 9-11 with domestic terrorism and stopping it. They have to stop domestic terrorists. And... There are so many things that happen with them in that regard that we never hear about, thank God, because it was thwarted before it became a thing. But every once in a while, one of those stories will kind of catch media attention about somebody that crossed state lines and they are on the terror watch list and then this happened. And all of a sudden it becomes a news story for a couple of days that everybody's paying attention to. But people behind the scenes think that's a, you know, that's a drop in the bucket, that stuff like this happens to them every single day. Well, I don't know where this, what's going to happen with this story, but it has captivated America. How we respond is going to be something else. Coming up in a moment, uh, the Attorney General of the state of Arizona, Chris Mays, is going to join us to talk about a multitude of topics, including the border, including the Super Bowl, including some possible criminal investigations going on, and a program called Track, where they are, uh, they are, they have been surveilling not just her, but this goes back over a decade, surveilling financial transactions of over five hundred dollars that are happening internationally. We'll talk about all of this stuff. Should be an interesting conversation for the entire last half hour of the show. It's coming up in just a few moments. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. I am very excited about this conversation. Joining me in the studio for the first time I get to see you as Attorney General, Chris Mays. Uh, first of all, congratulations. Thank you, Mike. It's and, good uh, to be with you. It's good to see you again. Uh, congratulations on your huge win. <laughs> <laughs> that, that landslide <laughs> that victory. That landslide victory. Yeah. Uh, uh, but congratulations in all seriousness. Yeah. Um, serious business to talk about, and I know there are a lot of different things. And I want to start with one that I saw the story, looked worrisome to me. We had the ACLU lawyers on saying that this track program, which is tracing um, financial transactions across state lines and across national international borders of over $500, they said it's like a dragnet. It's too all-encompassing. They believe it's unconstitutional and dangerous. What do you say about this program? So here's here's why I defend this program. And, and you're right. This is a program that started, you know, kind of back in 2006 and was continued on to 2014. Um, it's been supported by both Democratic and Republican AGs over the years. It It, it is very effective in helping uh, law enforcement agencies, uh, including mine, combat sex trafficking, human trafficking, uh, but especially 
especially going after the cartels and drug trafficking. You know, and in you know, in the past and still to this day, this is how money laundering happens around, especially drug trafficking. Um, the cartels um, and and drug traffickers use um, you know these wire services uh, to transfer money. They're not using bank accounts or regular banks. They're using these wire transfer services. Um, and so data has been collected from them that allows, um, and usually non-identifying data, but you know it, it does allow us to identify patterns and then to go after people ultimately um, who we think are engaging in these crimes. So it's really effective to your, I, I do think there's some areas for potential reform, including, you know, are too, do too many people have access to it? When you, uh, so if you have a bank, like I use Zelle on my bank account, it's yeah. not going through your bank account. It's going through these, like Western Union and other transfer services. Is that the case? About Zelle, I don't know, because okay. I think that's associated with Bank it of is. America. So I, because I, I use it myself. I actually. use it on my Wells Fargo account. On your Wells Fargo yeah. account. So I, I don't know about that. You know, it's really sort of, um, you know, Western Union type of sure. services. Um, so, but but there's no doubt there are a lot of transactions that um, get tracked, um, and what law enforcement agencies are using for it. And, and there are there are requirements, and the courts have upheld this uh, th- this program um, that it is only used for legitimate law enforcement purposes. So, just to be clear, because I'm not clear on this, that when a transaction is looked at because it's over five hundred dollars. Do you or do you not at that point have identifiers on who owns the account that's sent and who owns the account that receives? Or is it something that if you see a pattern, you go and get more information? I, I That's a good question. It would probably be a question for the director of track. Okay. I mean, keep in mind, this is a separate entity that is, you know, really... And you're talking with them. Uh, yes. In fact, on Monday, I have a meeting with the director, the executive director of track, And, I, you know, some of these details I will I will get from, from him. Um it is, you know, my understanding is in, in most instances that it's not identifying and we're looking at patterns, but it does allow them to eventually go after the individual if they think that person is engaged in crime. Okay, great. Um, let's shift to something else I think is immensely important that has also got to be stressing your office a little bit is we've got the Super Bowl here. So yeah. we've got all in a row, Barrett Jackson and all these car auctions, the WM Phoenix Open simultaneously going on with the Super Bowl. I talked this morning about how uh, groups are trying to knock down and get rid of sex trafficking, human trafficking. How is that affecting your office? This is a huge problem, Mike, and I am glad that you're focused on it because I am too. And you're right. We have um, sort of the triumvirate of major sporting events happening in the Valley, right? basically starting right now, right? And you just identified them. Um, And what happens often Times it happens year round in the valley, unfortunately, and in Arizona. But what happens is you start to see sex, sex trafficking occur, um, and uh, you know around these events, it it attracts this kind of activity. And we are doing everything we can from a law enforcement standpoint. And I won't go into the details of our operations, but I, I can tell you we are engaged from a law enforcement standpoint to 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 strike back against this um, and and to 
to catch these guys, these these rings and these guys that are doing this. Um, it, the, I will tell you, and you, I think you know this. The hotels um, where it had been occurring and does still sometimes occur are doing a better job of training their own people. Right. What I'm to to, to identify it when it's happening. Okay. You see these situations and and identify it and try to stop it. What I am worried about uh, increasingly are short-term rentals being used for sex trafficking at this time. Yeah. Airbnb, VRBO, hosts who are not present at the house to see if there's sex trafficking going on. And so I I am I am one am calling on VRBO and Airbnb to make training mandatory in the same way that many of the resorts and hotels are, are making it uh, mandatory or at least doing it for their employees. Yeah, it's interesting. I have a lot of friends that work in the hotel and resort businesses here, and they talk about the, the focus not being about that you don't want the reputation of having prostitution in your hotel. It's more about identifying and getting these sex traffickers. We even hear organizations advertising and saying, this is what to look for. If you see something that looks out of place and getting the yeah. public involved to see and, and trying to let people know, if you're going to do this here, all eyes are on you and we're going to catch you. Yeah, and, and I think you're, you make a really good point, which is we this is really about going after the people who are doing the sex trafficking. The, the, the organized... Uh, uh, criminal aspect of this, not 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 necessarily going after the women who are the victims of it, right? In many cases, these are women who are. This is not necessarily a voluntary activity. They're being used or they're being forced into this into this uh, activity. So we want to go after the the men, but especially the the organizers of the sex trafficking, and that's that's really important. But we need the hotels to be helping us uh, to to. Catch these guys, we need to also uh, make sure that short-term rentals, which, as you know, we have a massive sure. short-term rental industry here in Arizona, are also fighting it. Yeah, it's it's uh, it, when you see the ugly side. Sometimes it's children that are being trafficked, and it's these terrible. these kids are victims. And I'm glad you said that we're not looking to target them, but to break that organized that ring up to give that child or that woman an opportunity to get away yes. is amazing. Yeah. We've got to disrupt that ring, that those networks, um, and and it's got to be a year-round effort. This can't. I mean, it's definitely heightened during sure. the Super Bowl. Obviously, we have a lot of people flooding into the valley right now as you and I speak. But it's a year-round problem. All right, the Attorney General Chris Mays is joining us. We've got one more segment with her. We're going to talk about some of the ongoing things here in the state of Arizona. Stick around. Values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, happy Friday. We're spending a few moments with the Attorney General, Chris Mays, and uh, now let's talk about some of the other things that are going on. Let's start with, um, there were some pretty strong words from the Secretary of State's office recently, um, and he said that he has asked your office to look into possible felony charges as the gubernatorial candidate, Carrie Lake, was posting sig- pictures of sig- what looked like signatures of Arizona 
Arizona voters. He said it violates specific laws in Arizona, and he asked you to do something about it. Where is that? So what I can do, Mike, is I can confirm that we I can confirm that we did receive uh, Secretary of State's uh, referral uh, about that matter. Um, I really can't see too much more than that. Obviously, um, you know, we have other referrals on election matters. Uh, um, in general, what I say is, you know, people need to, to be careful. Um, you know, when it comes to, to to voting laws, you know, we we do have voting laws. We have have laws on the books that people need to be careful about, um, and uh, you know, and, and obviously we will uh, take a close look at any of these referrals and all of them that we receive. All right. So I, again, obviously, if there's, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if you're in an investigation or th- contemplating, I don't want you to compromise it. So let's talk about uh, uh, the supervisor, the chairman of the board of supervisors, Maricopa County, Clint Hickman, recently wrote a letter, and he's so frustrated. And I've known Clint for a long time. Uh, he didn't take with a grain of salt, but he wasn't as animated when it was happening to him. But when other elections workers were being threatened, he asked for you to pursue criminal charges. What can you say to that? Well, what I would say uh, to to Clint and to all uh, elections officials across Arizona is they now have an attorney general who is going to vigorously prosecute anyone who engages in death threats against our elections officials, uh, violence violence, threats of violence, attempted interference in our elections. Um, I will also uh, seek and go after any legislation we need to make it uh, easier for me to prosecute uh, these these uh, death threats against our election officials, Mike. This is a massive problem. We were talking earlier um, uh, off the show, but we now have a third of our counties that have had a top elections official resign due to the death threats that are happening. Um, And that's insane. We can't have a democracy if we don't have people who are who are who feel like they can carry out our, our elections free of these death threats. So we can't have a democracy if a third of our elections officials are feeling like they have to resign to protect their families. And it's interesting because we do have, and I understand uh, people being upset with some things that happened in Maricopa County with the election, but there is, there's a way to handle and channel your anger, and then there's a way that crosses the line, and a lot of what we've seen has crossed that line. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we've, we saw that down in Cochise County, we saw that in Yavapai County, we've seen it in Maricopa County, we're all of the, we're board members of boards of supervisors, elections officials um, have had death threats come in. Some of them have had to go into hiding. Um, as you know, I was born and raised in Yavapai County. I'm a former Republican myself. The Republican elections officials in my home county resigned due to death threats um, from basically the folks on the far right wing but you know that's not okay that is just not okay and so people need to be on notice that they now have an attorney general who will prosecute this behavior i will not allow this to go on in 2024 and 2026 all right so uh, now i'm going to throw you a curveball because you just reminded me of something you brought this up you said that you are a former republican yeah yeah so do you believe with that 
being part of your life that it, it puts you in a better position to work with both sides of the aisle? Or is there animosity from some people in the Republican Party that you switched over? <laughs> you know what I mean? Is, yeah. it, does it hurt you in some way? I don't know. I actually I don't feel the animosity. I think it does maybe put me in a better spot. I certainly understand. I, I understand Republicans. I had I have I was a Republican up until early 2019. So it's not that long ago that I was a Republican. I'm also from rural Arizona, so I deeply understand rural Arizona. And I think rural Arizonans feel like they've been left behind. And one of the things that I have promised is I am going to focus on supporting law enforcement and prosecutors, but especially law enforcement, local police uh, uh, departments, local sheriffs in rural Arizona, because they do feel like in rural Arizona that the state of Maricopa has left them behind. So do you... um Contrary to, I would guess, what the headlines would tell you and maybe us in talk radio about the divide between Republicans and Democrats, do you see similarities in the two parties and what they believe and what they want? I do. I mean, honestly, you know, you look at issues like the one we first started talking about, the track program. You know, I think there are conservatives like you who who think, you know, there's some privacy concerns in that. And there are, are, are progressives who also think there are privacy concerns in that program. You know, in rural Arizona, there's a huge amount of agreement on issues. And, you know, you talk to a, a rural sheriff or a rural police chief, they don't talk about politics. They don't talk about whether you're Republican or Democrat. They talk about public safety, and everybody is concerned about public safety. So I, I think it, throughout Arizona, there's a lot of commonality. I think Twitter is a problem. Well, you know, it's funny because I love Twitter only because it's not a real place, and I don't take any of it seriously. Right, right. So if you do it, look at it that way. It's really funny sometimes. But what's not funny about it is what it does to get people so angry and yes, divided. Exactly. And I think it's funny, but not funny, right? Because so you know we laugh at stuff that happens on there. You know all the all the stuff that's been said sure. about me. I mean, I could we could go on and on. But then there's the dark stuff and the divisive right. stuff, and that's what worries me. That that gets people ginned up. And and then all of a sudden, and that's where the death threats are happening, right? They're happening on social media. And the algorithms behind these social media uh, programs that are encouraging that kind of hatred. So uh, I guess uh, I got about a one minute left. The, it, it would say maybe your world being in, on both sides of this helps you because in your job, it's, it, it is a partisan office, but it's not supposed to be a partisan office. You're supposed no. to look at the law and apply the law. Do you think that helps you having had – you know, being in both places. I think it does. And and what I promised the people of Arizona is that I'm going to, to to the degree that I absolutely can, work to depoliticize the Attorney General's office. It is not a Republican or a Democratic office. I hope when I leave this office, um, whether that's in four years or eight years, people will look back and say that they didn't, they don't really know whether I was a Democrat or a Republican that's- because it shouldn't be that way. I, I so appreciate you coming down, and I hope we can make this, we can do this more often. Let's it would, do it. It would be terrific. Anytime. That is the, the Attorney General Chris Mays joining us. Um, it is great to talk with her, and because this is you know the Chief Law Enforcement Officer here in the state of Arizona, a lot of things on her plate. So we're going to get updates as it goes on. we got Super Bowl right around the corner. We'll get an update about that. Coming up just after 11 o'clock, we're going to talk about jobless claims have gone down. We are also seeing the new jobs in the month of January skyrocketed. All that's going to be in the next hour. 
the show. So please stick around.